You can turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Genesis chapter 41. It was a number of years ago I had experienced a uh, pretty uh, great for me at the time ministry disappointment. I was at the crossroads of my life and uh, I was confused. I was disappointed. I actually got to a point where I started to question my future in ministry. I was questioning my gifts and what God had for me. What I, I thought was clear um, didn't seem clear. And I had a number of friends that had come around me and uh, breathed life into me and encouraged me and uh, comforted me. Um, one friend wrote a note to me. She's actually in the back tonight, uh, today. Um, I actually still have that note. Uh, in the note, she was encouraging me. Um, she was helping me to see that there is something greater than the things and the disappointments that are happening in this world. She, she took me not to uh, boast about me. She boasted much about Christ in that letter, uh, to that note to me. I still hold that note in my journal, and every, every once in a while when I find myself struggling, I, I go to that note and I look at that uh, gracious letter that she wrote to me. She took me to Isaiah chapter 43. You don't have to turn there. Just let me read a couple of passages from there because I think it lays a backdrop for what we're going to be talking about today. In Isaiah chapter 43, God said through Isaiah, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames, they shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, the Savior. Verse 4 says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. Fear not, for I am with you. Verse 11, I, I, he repeats it, am the Lord and beside me there is no savior. I declared and saved my people and proclaimed them when there were no strange God among you and you were my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver you from my hand. I work, and who can turn their back? And then these verses in verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, a river in the desert. And as I was reading that passage again, even this week, I pulled out that note again this week, and I looked at that note, and I was thinking of that passage, I, I, I saw Joseph. I saw Joseph's life. How many disappointments must Joseph have gone through? Mine were minimal in comparison to him. He lost his family. His family was stripped away from him. His, his faith was stripped away from him. He is in a land of people where he doesn't even understand the language. He's been stripped away. His, even his reputation, this godly man, his reputation has been stripped away from him. How is it that he doesn't spiral? How is it that he stands firm? How is it that he does not become lost in the midst of the despair? I, I think this morning we're going to find several principles that are there in his life that actually come right back to this passage in Isaiah 43 
that he does in his life that we must do. I think the thing that he noticed and he realized is this, that God is sovereign over us. You know, we were just singing that song earlier. Thank you so much, Carmelo. Uh, we were singing that song earlier. You know, oftentimes when we sing songs, we don't actually sit down and think through the words. Do you actually think through the words that God is sovereign over you? I was thinking about Joseph as well. Because as I went through my disappointment, I had friends, I had that friend write a letter to me. I had a number of friends that came around me. I had people that were able to give me God's word and share with me God's word. But what did Joseph have? Nothing. Joseph didn't have any friends. He was removed. Joseph didn't have a Bible. We have 66 books, a love letter from God to you. He didn't have that. At best, what he had was um, promises that his great-grandfather, Abraham, had been receiving, and his grandfather, Isaac, and his father, Jacob. At best, that's what he had. He also had those two dreams that God had given him. And he held fast to the promise keeper. He held fast to the fact that there was a God who was present with him. I'm with you. He held fast to a God who had a purpose in his life. He held fast to the promises. So when you go through the dark waters and the deep waters and the fires and the difficulties of your life, when it feels like everything in your life is upside down, who do you turn to? This is not happening by mistake. God is sovereign over you. Can you trust him today? Lord, I pray that as we begin, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see that as out of control as our lives feel, they're sovereignly under your control. Lord, I pray that as much as the plans that we have don't work out, help us to know that you're a providential God and that you have plans for us to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, sovereign in love. You are sovereign over us. Lord, I pray not only would we see your sovereignty and not only would we see your providence, but I pray that we would see your love, that you are infinitely loved with us. Not because we are beautiful in of ourselves, no. Because you look to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love that you have for him, you pour out upon us. So Father, for those that are sitting here today feeling like they're in a pit, I pray that they would know that they can be brought to a palace and ultimately they can be brought to the pinnacle even as you did in Joseph's life. The glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name we said, amen. So looking here with me in Genesis chapter 41, Genesis chapter 41, I, I, I want to pick out some life principles that I think that Joseph gives us that will help us in our time of struggle. Uh, I was sharing with my uh, class earlier this morning that one of the things I do with my students is I will at times write on a board three words, um, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. I think I've talked to you about this before. And so we would try to debate in class, what does the word knowledge mean? And inevitably, they would come up with words like data or information or, um, or facts, and so they would write those down, so knowledge means that. But knowledge alone doesn't save us. And now we move to understanding. 
understanding is, is maybe a comprehension of those facts. I can understand it. I can appreciate it. I can, I can comprehend it. But understanding alone doesn't save anyone. Really, real salvation comes from the fact that I've, I've enacted wisdom because God has granted me faith. He's opened my eyes and now I can trust him. I have the knowledge of your truth. I understand your truth. Now I apply your truth in my life, Lord. You have saved me. Now I am living every day by your grace and for your glory. See, what was different about Joseph and the reason why he did not spiral in that pit is because he kept God sovereignly, the sovereign God, in his focus. He did not get caught up with humanity's rejection. He did not get caught up into humanity's approval. He got caught up in the fact that he was approved of by God. He was accepted by God. He was loved by God. And God's presence was there in his life through the greatest valleys. One of my favorite authors wrote a book. His uh, name is Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts. It's a great verse, a great book for you to pick up. How many of you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord, what? With all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will make your path straight. So I hope this morning what you're going to see is that there's a God who is working in Joseph and then through Joseph. God could never work through Joseph until he had done something within Joseph. It had to be internal before it was ever external. And so now in your life today, maybe as you're going through your great valleys and the difficulties in your life, you must allow God to work in you so that he can work through you by his grace and for his glory. Seven points I want you to hear. They're going to come quickly. Point number one, be patiently trusting God in the midst of your struggles. Be patiently trusting God in the midst of your struggles. Verse 1 of chapter 4, 41. After two whole years, stop there. Now, what happened in chapter 40? We just heard Pastor Tim last week preach on what happened in chapter 40. We heard of Joseph in jail. And he has been wrongly accused, and he's been placed in this imprisonment. And he has been rejected again. He has been accused of wrong. His reputation is gone, and now he's in a prison. And there were two people, a cupbearer and a baker, that had a dream. And they had a dream, and they couldn't interpret that dream. And so Joseph was brought to them, and he says, didn't God, isn't God the one who interprets dreams? And, and he remember, he interpreted the dream. The baker was going to die, and the cupbearer was going to be restored to his rightful position. Wonderful news for the cupbearer. And you remember what Joseph said to him at the end of chapter 40? Just remember me when you go before Pharaoh and get me out of this pit. How many times have you prayed to God that God gets you out of the pit? Get you out of the struggle? How many times have you prayed and it's like God hasn't answered and you, you waited two days, two weeks, two months well, Joseph is now at two years, and he's been forgotten. What I find with Joseph is that he must have had some level of patience. He patiently endured, and he patiently trusted that God was still with him in the midst of the struggles. He needed to remember that God is working in our waiting. God doesn't stop acting. 
Joseph wanted to be out of that um, prison, but he would never have known that if God had actually let him out of the prison two years earlier, he would not have been in a position to help the Egyptian people with the famine. He would never have been in the position to help his family move out of their land and to Egypt. He would never have known that the line of the Messiah was going to come through him, and if he got out of prison when he wanted the promises of God would not have come through. So what God did was this. I, knew, I hear you. Not now. Be patient. Step number one. How did he recognize and deal with this? He patiently entrusted that God was in the midst of the struggle. The second thing I think I see from Joseph's life is that he needed to be aware that trials and testings come before triumphs. Trials and testings come before triumphs. Look with me in verses 1 through 15. Uh, after two whole years he's forgotten, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up from the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile. After them, they stood by the other cow on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and thin cow ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Have you ever had a bad dream? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, whoa! I mean, it's like, he's dreaming cows, but um, sometimes you wake up out of this dream, and it's like, what in the world does that mean? And, and Pharaoh, I should tell you, was viewed as the Egyptian god. So he was viewed as the god of Egypt, so when he is dreaming, there was something really significant with the dreams. Okay, it's just a bad dream, so he goes back to bed. And then it happens again. Verse 5, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted, by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh woke again. Behold, it was a dream. What does this mean? I'm the God, and it's funny, he's the God of Egypt, and he can't figure out what the dream means because he's not turning to the real God. So what does he do? He goes and grabs all of his magicians, all of these um, all of these intellectual people and interpret my dream. He goes to some psycho, uh, psychoanalysis and he goes to um, dream analysis, lays down on a couch and tells me, tells me what the dream is. And all of these musicians couldn't come up with anything. I don't know if they just didn't answer. Some believe that they didn't answer him because they were afraid of him, which is true. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time. It could also be that they were giving answers and he's like, no, give another answer. That's not it. And go give another answer. No, that's not it. And over and over, he's finding himself frustrated. And then what happens? Verse 9, the cupbearer, almost sheepishly probably, I remember my offenses today. I don't know. You know, when I've gotten in trouble, I don't think I want to remind you of the thing that I did against you that caused us great harm. You know, it's like a, I hurt my wife terribly. Do I want to remind her, well, you remember when I did that thing five years ago to you, Amy? So the cupbearer 
brings up to Pharaoh, he says, I remember my offense today. I don't know, commentators are different on this, is he talking about the offenses against Pharaoh? Maybe. Or is he talking about the offenses against Joseph that he forgot him? Maybe. I don't know, both work. I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with the servant and put me and the cup, uh, chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. And I was restored to my office. And the baker was hanged. So he now tells about the dream. He says about Joseph. You remember this guy two years ago? That's right, this guy from two years ago. Yeah, you know, Pharaoh, I think if there's anybody here that could do it, I think this guy could. This guy was right, right on the morning. Baker died. I'm here. Remember, I'm a good servant now, but I'm here with you. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So the second thing I think I learned from Joseph, not only do I learn that I need to be patiently trusting God, but the second thing is I need to be aware that trials and testings come before my triumphs. There, if you think about it, any triumphs that you had went through the path of trials and suffering. Any degree that you will ever get, any student that is here going to graduate from high school eventually, there's a lot of trials and testings before you go down that aisle and get that degree. And for every person that is here, you know, we heard of a wonderful birth this week. Um, Every person that was here was born through trials for their mom, pain through their mom to bring us to faith and to bring us to life. Everything that happens in this world goes down the path of suffering. So we need to be aware that every trial and every testing will come before the triumphs. Joseph realized that. Why does God allow us to go through suffering? Corrie Tim Boom said this. I like this quote. She says, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. So why does God allow you to go through suffering? I don't know. Uh, oftentimes people will ask me, well, why is God allowing this? And usually they have two questions, why and how. Why is God allowing this? They're looking for meaning or purpose. And then how is how am I going to handle this? And I believe that what scripture teaches us is that there are a number of reasons why. God allows us to suffer that he may display his glory in our lives. God allows us to suffer so that we may grow in the likeness of Christ. God allows us to suffer so that we may have confidence in him. God allows us to suffer to keep us away from sin and to hate sin and to run away from it. God allows us to suffer so that we may learn patience. God allows us to suffer so that we may understand the presence of God in every circumstance in our lives. Warren Wearsby put it this way, God balances suffering with glory. He doesn't replace suffering with glory. Rather, he transforms suffering into glory. I like that. So as you go through the pit, God can take that pit and bring you out to the palace. Joseph has now been called to the palace. It's amazing. 
I want you to realize that when you suffer, expect that it's going to happen. Accept it. Accept it even as a gift from God filtered through his loving hands. Job saw that. He saw that God had allowed him to go through this. Jesus had seen it as well as he went to his cross. He says, Father, is there a way to stop this? And God says, no. And he says, not my will, but let your will be done. He knew that this path was filtered through the loving hands of his father. Expect it and accept it as a gift from God. I think we need to come to a place where we understand it and cast our cares upon him daily and trust him. Wearsby said also this about suffering, which I like. Suffering is not paying a price. It's making an internal, eternal investment with guaranteed dividends. You hear it? It's making an eternal investment with guaranteed dividends. So step number one in his process is that he patiently trusted God. Step number two is that he was aware that trials and testings come before triumphs. Step number three, he needed to be honoring of God, constantly giving him glory. Verse 16, So Pharaoh has just said, I heard you're the man to interpret my dream. Now, after I've been in the pit and after I've been beaten down with everybody, that flattery would, I'd be tempted to go, yep, you're right. But Joseph didn't. He gave honor to God. He said, Joseph answered, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh the reasonable answer, a favorable answer. Actually, in the Hebrew, that phrase, it is not me, is actually one word. It's almost, no, not me. He is he's taking this glory away from himself. It's not me. But he's been doing that all his life, right? When he was with his father and his brothers, he told that God is the one that had given the dream. Remember when he was at Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar's wife has got his jacket. He says, how can I do this sin against you and against my God? When he was the cupbearer and the baker, he says, isn't it God who interprets dreams? And multiple times in this passage, we are going to see that he is constantly giving God the glory. He is worthy of praise, not me. The reason why Joseph didn't spiral, the reason why Joseph was able to stay firm was because he focused on one thing, that God gets the glory, not me. Look at verse 25 similar. He says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed what he is going to do. Verse 28, similar. It is as I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by who? God, and God will surely and shortly bring it about. Even at the end of the chapter, which we'll get to in a little bit, in the naming of his children, Manasseh and Ephraim, he calls upon God. He says, God has made me forget Manasseh. Ephraim, God has made me fruitful. Constantly in his life, he is finding himself giving glory to God, looking away from himself. I have this phrase that I use. It goes, I can't, he can. He has, he does, he will, I can only in him. Do you hear it? It's not about me, it's about him. And if anything comes out of my life, all the glory goes to him. That's Joseph. 
And the reason why Joseph wasn't spiraling in the tomb, in the pit, was because he realized, I can be patiently trusting God in the midst of the trials, and that the trials and the testings will come before my triumphs. And they also recognize that all the glory has to go to God. Step number three. Step number four, verses 25 to 20 and 36. We need to be bold and confident in speaking God's words to others. Now, I want you to consider that this is the most powerful man in the world. And Joseph has just spent years in jail. He was 13, uh, 17 years old when he left his family and that pit. He is now 30 years old. He has spent at least two years in prison that we know of. So he has spent 13 years away from his family. He is a convict he has been accused of rape. He was in chains just hours before, and he's now standing before the most powerful man in the world. And what does he say? Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, I should tell you that in verses 16 and following, um, uh, Pharaoh just repeats the dream. He gives a little bit more information. We won't read it, uh, but he gives a little bit more data, more details to Joseph, but it's just a repeating of the dream. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Joseph what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. It is as I told you, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that there will be seven years of plenty, and seven years of famine. What boldness. You know, we have a problem at times even talking to one another about the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. And that's just talking peer to peer. Can you imagine going before the, the highest person in your nation or the highest person in the world, and you're saying that your nation is doomed unless you do something. Unless you follow what I am prescribing for you, you're doomed. And you're, it's not even me prescribing it, it's God that's doing it. And then on top of that, what he's doing is that Egyptian God, he's saying you're not God at all. The true God is speaking to this fake God, and he's saying what this God is going to do. What boldness he has. And the reason why he was able to not spiral is because he saw God as sovereign over us. And over and over again, he says, God has shown it to you. God is going to do. God has shown it to you. God is going to do. He even gets more bold in verse 33. Amazingly. Now let Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh? Now I brought you here to interpret a dream. I didn't call you here to tell me what to do. But that's exactly where Joseph went. In the boldness of Christ, in the boldness of God, he says, let Pharaoh select his discerning and wise men and, let him, uh, and set him over the land. And then a second time, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint uh, overseers. In essence, what Joseph gave a plan, and the plan was this. In the um, seven years of plenty, I, want you to, uh, I think you should collect about 20% tax, if you want to call it that, from everybody, 
hold on to those resources so that when we get to the seven years of famine, you will have the ability to help not only your land, but other lands around. You know, you go before a sovereign, an earthly sovereign. Remember when Esther had to walk into um, the king and she was afraid because she was not called in to speak to that king and she was afraid that she could die. Can you imagine telling the sovereign that you're not sovereign? Telling the sovereign that your nation is going to be destroyed and telling the sovereign a plan of action. I was just in the pit an hour ago and now I'm in the palace directing the most powerful man in this world. We need to be able to have a boldness and a confidence to speak the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said this, Pray for me that my words may be given to me in an open mouth, in boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The one thing that impresses me about Joseph, probably there's a lot of things that impress me about Joseph, but one of the things that impressed me about Joseph is this. He was never afraid. Or at least we didn't see his fear keeping him from speaking. He would tell his brothers, you're going to bow down before me. <laughs> what boldness. He tells Potiphar's wife, no. He tells a guy who's going to be condemned to die in three days, you're going to die, buddy. And then he stands before the most powerful man in the universe and says, you're not God. What kind of faith? What kind of boldness? We need to be bold and confident in speaking God's word to others. Point number five, I need you to recognize that we need to be humble. God will lift you up. Verses 37 to 45. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And the Pharaoh said to the servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God is. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all there, these things, there is none so discerning and wise as you. He's using Joseph's own words. You shall be over my house and over my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh took out his signet ring and handed it to Joseph. And he put clothes on him and fine clothes. And he put a chain around his neck and he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out and they said, bow the knee. And they set him over all the land. Moreover, Pharaoh was said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in the land of Egypt. And the Pharaoh changed his name. And he gave him a marriage and he gave him family. Pretty incredible. He went from the pit to the palace to pinnacle. Can you imagine in hours I was in chains? I was in scrubby clothes and now I am shaven. I've got clothes and I've got a job. I've got the greatest job. I've, I'm Pharaoh's right-hand man. Some people would say that isn't that incredible luck. Isn't that a twist of fate? Isn't that just good timing? Joseph was there at the right time. No, there was a sovereign, providential, infinitely wise, and loving God that was behind it all. This is a biblical principle that tends to happen. He who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. 
but he who humbles himself, God will lift him up. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. He left heaven. He left the pinnacle of all of eternity for you. And he came down to take on a baby. He took on a body. He became a human, human being. The, the spirit of God encased himself. Jesus Christ as spirit has encased himself in a human body for all of eternity. He became a babbling baby for you. What humility. And then, then he, he put himself with parents and, and he put himself under the law that he wrote. And then he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. What humility. And then God says, I am going to raise you up that every knee will bow, almost like the bowing of the knee here, like with Joseph. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was able to do this because he trusted in God. He was able to do this because he knew that he was going through trials and those trials would lead to triumphs. He, he was able to do this because he's constantly focusing away from himself. He's able to do this because he was able to speak boldly and with confidence. He's able to do this because he humbled himself before the mighty God. He was able to do this for two other reasons. He was diligent and responsible and active in doing the work of God. He was diligent responsible and active in doing the word of work of God. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered Pharaoh's, uh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and through all the land of Egypt. He didn't rest on his laurels. As, as you will read in this section, what he did was he got right to work. We have this problem in church today. Um, we have this argument over the sovereignty of God and human uh, responsibility. And there's some churches that kind of swing both ways. The reality is both are true. God is sovereign and I'm responsible. And what God has done is he has given Joseph a job. But Joseph got right to work. He was diligent. He wasn't resting on his laurels. He didn't kick his feet up. You know, after he spent two years in prison in chains, I think I probably want to take a vacation. There was no vacation here for Joseph. Joseph went right to work. He went right to work throughout all the land. He wasn't passive. He was trusting in God's work in his life that, God, you've done something in me. Now you're going to do something through me. As Jerry Bridges says, he had dependent discipline. He was dependent upon God solely but he was disciplined in our lives. And I think that's part of our problem today as believers. We don't get to work. The average person doesn't read the scriptures. The Bible tells us to study, to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said through Philippi in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You, you need to be at work doing things. Joseph went right to work. And the reason why he didn't spiral is because he was diligent. He was active. He was responsible, doing the work that God had called him to do. So what do we have seen? We have seen that Joseph um, has a number of principles that um, we need to be following. But the last principle I want you to consider is found in verse 50. He needs to be thankful. Constantly reminding himself what God has done in his life and through him. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called them by name, and he named the firstborn Manasseh, 
And he said this, I called him Manasseh for God has made me forget all my hardships in my father's house. What I find with Joseph is this. He's pretty thankful. The average person I work with gets so focused on the deficits, the things they don't have, the things that they lack, the things that they desperately think they need and they're missing it. What Joseph was focusing on is what I have. And Joseph said that I have forgotten the pain of my past. Is he saying I've forgotten my family? No, he hasn't forgotten his family. He loves his father. He probably still has a love for his brothers as well. He just says, I'm not going to allow the past to rule me today. Far too many of us are ruled by our past. Far too many of us are ruled by the pains of what other people have done. We rehearse those things over and over and over and over again in our hearts, in our minds. We go from a, a, a wounded spirit to bitterness. We go from bitterness to anger. We go from anger to stubbornness. We go from stubbornness to rebellion in our lives because we just can't get over the pain. And what, what God did, and he promised it through Manasseh, this name Manasseh, I'm going to forget the pain of my past. God, you are sovereign over my past. You allowed me to go through the pit. You have allowed me to go to the palace. And now you've brought me to the pinnacle. There's something radical in my life, God, because of you. I forget the pain of my past. And then he named his second son. My second son, Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Not only has he helped me to forget the pain of my past, but he has also helped me to become fruitful. You know what I, I find interesting? He gave them Hebrew names. He didn't give them Egyptian names. He's in the middle of Egypt. His family is gone. He has been separated from them, but he is trusting the sovereign God. He gave them a name of his own people, even though he was not with his people. So what do we learn from Joseph's life? We learn that Joseph found himself moving away from the spirals because Joseph trusted in a God and he was patiently trusting in him day after day. We find that he was aware of the fact that trials and testings will come before their triumphs. He was constantly honoring God and giving him glory. He was bold and confident in speaking his word. He was humble in that he allowed God to lift him up. He was diligent and responsible and active in all that he did. And he was thankful, constantly reminding himself of what God had done for him. So I ask you this morning, where are you in the story? Most of us are probably never going to experience what Joseph experienced your brothers and sisters wanting to kill you. You've removed from your family. You've been falsely accused and put into prison for years. And now you're standing before the most powerful man in the universe and you are telling him that his nation is being destroyed. Joseph is considered a type of Christ. As you look at some of his life, he was loved by his father, so was Jesus. He was rejected by his brothers, so was Jesus. He was um, given a call to go to his brothers, so was Jesus. He was sold as a slave, so was Jesus. Joseph could have been killed by his brothers. Jesus was killed for you and for me. Jesus went to a pit and rose, so did Joseph. 
Today, I ask you, do you see Jesus today? The reason why Joseph was able to get out of that pit was because he reminded himself of a sovereign. But we know infinitely more than Joseph did. Joseph had the words from his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and a couple of dreams. We have the whole word of God. We know the gospel story. Live it. Breathe it. Trust the one who wrote it. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Remind yourself that he is sovereign and in control overall. Would you pray with me? So Lord, there is strength within a sorrow. There's beauty in our tears. You meet us in the morning with a love that casts out fears. You're working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. Perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. Lord, I pray if there is one here today that is in the pit, is in great pain because of things from their past. Maybe they're in great pain because of things that they've done in their past and they feel so overwhelmed with guilt, so overwhelmed with the fears that they can never be loved or accepted. They've been rejected by every earthly thing and they, can, they expect they're going to be rejected by you. Lord, I pray that they would be able to see that there is no sin so deep that you're not deeper still. I pray that they would see that their guilt can be turned to the gracious God and that you can give gratitude. Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes and open deaf ears and help people to see the wonder of your name, the wonder of your son. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the promises that you've given us written in the scriptures and I pray that we would hear those promises. I would hear of a God who's sovereign, a God who's providential, a God who's loving, a God who is with us. So when we go through those deep pits, Father, remind us that you're with us by your Son, with your Spirit, for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.